This morning, as you know, we're teaching through the book of James, so let's turn there. We are at verse 12 this morning, James chapter 1, so let's turn to verse 12. I won't take the time to read this because in a little bit you'll see why. Pretty much this is a summation of all that James has been speaking of here recently in this section of the chapter. But our text is verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Again, blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Well, for those who have not been here with us in the last few weeks, we have been preaching and began a series of sermons upon the book of James here. And right away after the introduction there in verse 1, his salutations and greeting, he begins right away to speak to the brethren in a most gracious and kind manner in dealing with the idea of the temptations, hence trials and the adversities that do come upon the people of God. And you notice here in verse 2, he begins by telling us to several things, really, to begin in verse 2. He tells us, first of all, to count it a joy, count it all joy, as a matter of fact, when we do fall into diverse temptations. He takes it for granted here that the people of God are going to go through temptations. And not just temptations themselves, but as we mentioned here, the word divers has the idea of meaning all sorts, all kinds, in many colors, for instance. These types of things are going to come upon us. And James wants to reinforce us here this morning by saying, look, when this happens, count it all joy. All great joy. The word here all has the idea of overabundance. And no, James is not uh, crazy here. But he understands something of the workings of temptations in the lives of God's people. Again, we may scratch our head and say, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. Surely, James, you're wrong here. Surely the man is not blessed in this sort of thing. But in reality, again, this is God's perspective and not man's. We're not really interested in what we think. We already know what we think. What our duty here is to, is to discern what God thinks. And that's one of the aspects of preaching. It's to help us discern to what does the Lord mean when He speaks. And one of the things He tells us, as we see in verse 2, is that we're to count it all joy. Verse 3, we're to know some things. Verse 4, we're to let that knowledge of patience and how God deals with us to go on into perfection or into maturity. And then verse 5, as we pointed out, we're to pray for wisdom. Who here doesn't need wisdom in the midst of trials and temptation? In fact, that's what we're lacking a lot of when we come to trials is wisdom. And so we need to pray. Pray for wisdom. Count it all joy. Take some facts for granted, Paul or James tells us here in these things, and do them. And brethren, a lot of our trouble is, in the midst of our trials, is that we fail to do this. We just plain, flat fail to do the things recorded here. We may get, if you're like me, you get about halfway through the trial and you go, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be counting this all joy. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to be praying. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to account these things true according to God's word. Oh yeah. Well, before the oh yeah, we should have been thinking of this all along. 
and realizing that, brethren, we are going to go through trials. And there are certain steps, if you want to use this terminology, certain things that ought to be going through our minds and hearts and when these things come upon us. And then he gives us the warning. Don't ask in doubt. Don't let the prominent feature of your life be doubt because God won't hear you. And you can cry out for wisdom all day, but if it's not asked in faith, he tells us in verse 6, we're like the wave of the sea. And then he gives us the warning there in 7 and 8 and so forth. And then last week we saw verses 9 through 11 there, the idea of humility. Of humility. So another thing to add to joy, to prayer, facts, and seeking wisdom is to be humble in the midst of trials and adversity. Believe me, brother, that's one of the things he's working in us when he does this, is to be humble. So one of the things, and I'm not trying here to be one of Job's friends, but if you're going through a trial right now, you might want to examine your humility meter. It might be running on high. Because one of the reasons sometimes he brings trial is to humble us. Again, I don't want to be Job's one of Job's buds and say, look, I know why you're going through a trial. because you are one proud person. Please don't take that's what I'm doing. I'm not. I'm just saying you need to check that. Maybe pride has got the upper hand in your life. And so God is bringing something to you to make you say, wait a minute. How have I been walking? Has my nose been in the air? Have I looked down on brethren when they were going through trials and I, I was ready and quick to tell them what to do? And then now it's upon me. What do I do? Well, that's humility being worked out in us. So we need to be careful of these things. And we have saw all this. We trust we have and we hopefully have learned some things in this. And so now we see the summation of the first ten verses, really, from verses 2 down through verse 11, found in verse 12 there. It's kind of a summation. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. The first thing I want us to see this morning, then, is the fact or the experience of temptations in the lives of God's people. Brethren, we are faced with temptations. It's just a fact of the Christian walk. So don't be surprised that when trials come, oh no, oh no, oh, what's happened here? There's something wrong. Well, we are to face trials. Again, we don't like them. That's the first thing we'd have to say. If we were going to write an epistle, we would say, by the way, not only you should count on joy, but you can also say you don't like your trials. Well, that would be a given, wouldn't it? Nobody gluts for punishment, I hope. None of us want to be voluntary uh, martyrs. But the fact of the matter is, though, we do have trials. And to think that's not, well, you know, am I to be so skimmish about trials and temptations? Well, yeah, you are. Remember what Jesus said? He said, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Did he not? In fact, one of the one of the petitions in the model prayer is lead us not into temptation. So, yeah, there is something to our Christian nature that there is an aversion really then to trials. Because Jesus himself says, don't do this. Pray that you be not led into temptation. 
Jesus Himself, in the midst of His agony there in the garden, prayed that the cup would pass. Did He not? Sure He did. See, all those are lawful things for us. But when they do come, though, count it all joy. And then recognize some things He's going to tell us. Pray for wisdom in the temptation. Pray to be sustained in the temptation. Why? Because, brethren, they're coming. If they're not already here, they're going to come. Some of you who have newly confessed Christ here among us, mark it down. You're going to face temptation. You may have already have in some form. But let me assure you, more are coming. Count the cost. This is what you signed up for. When you became a believer, you signed up for temptations and adversities and trials. Yes, again, pray that you don't receive them. Because temptations try us. Verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith is a reality there, isn't it? So it's not an easy... A test was never meant to be easy. It's not much of a test. I try to tell our... I've said this in illustrations before, but you know, when you take a test, it's not much of a test if you already know all the answers, right? It wouldn't be a test at all. The test is to test you, to try you, to see how well you have learned, and also to prepare you for another lesson that's to come. We call that experience in the Word of God. So we have all these things that come to us. So these are realities. Things are, are real to us. Temptations, brethren, are the lot of God's people. Now, it's not an everyday necessarily thing, but we can say it's a thing that we're going to go through. It's true. David said, the lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. See, David can say that. And yeah, David had a child run off, uh, apostate from at least the known religion of that day. Absalom was a most wicked young man. David can say that. And as certainly as the faithful God, someone has said, the God of all grace who hath called us to His eternal glory will prepare us fully for that glory, so certainly does He make it necessary that we should suffer a while. And of course, in comparison, all of our sufferings are nothing in light of the glory of God that's going to be ours someday. To stand in the very presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all the holy hosts of angels, and all the redeemed. And then whatever we do in heaven, all eternity, that's all ours. And all of our sorrows of this life will fade away. Every tear, the Bible says, will be wiped away. None of that, none of this, will matter then in heaven. But there's still the now, though, isn't it? That's the hard part, isn't it? But as Paul says, we have to reckon, brethren, that the present sufferings that we go through are nothing to be compared to the glory of heaven. In fact, those sorrows and those trials... They add to our glory. I don't know how God does it. I don't have to know how God does it. I just know He does. 
and that sanctifying, mysterious work that he does in the hearts and lives of his people. He takes these very sorrows and trials and adversities that you and I face and he makes them for our good and, yea, even for our glory. If you don't believe that, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the last two verses. It's there. It's what he tells us. Romans 8.28, all of us supposedly know that verse. We at least know the verse. We may not know the experience of it. But we know all things work together for good to them who love God, those who are the called according to His purpose. At least we ought to know that, shouldn't we? But we will suffer in this life. We will have temptation. Peter reminds us those folks he's writing there in chapter 5 and verse 10. But the grace, or excuse me, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, notice that, after you have suffered a while, make you perfect, established, strengthen, settle you. After you've suffered a while. Not before, but after. God does bring His people through trials and testing. The Bible says, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. One of Job's friends truthfully said, they, they all spoke the truth, they just weren't speaking it at the right time and to the right person. What they said was true. One of the things they said, yet man is born unto trouble as sparks fly upward. We're born to this. Psalm thirty-four, nineteen says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. We have the promise, but the Lord delivered them out of them all. But the point is what? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Paul says that no man should be moved by these afflictions for yourselves know that we are appointed thereto. A little sovereignty in that one, isn't there? That's a lot of things. What we, can, yeah, we Calvinists, and I'll use the term, you know, we believe these things. Well, that's the, we're the people who's going to be tested in this stuff. The Armenian isn't tested in his knowledge of his, the sovereignty of God because he doesn't believe it. We who are Calvinistic, who believe and say we believe in the sovereignty of God, we're the ones who are going to be touched at that very point of the sovereignty of God. He'll say, you think you believe in sovereignty? You think I'm sovereign? You believe that? Well, here's some trial I'm throwing your way by my sovereign decree. Who did sin, this man or his mother, that he should be born blind? Neither, Jesus said but that God's glory would be manifested. That's sovereignty. He didn't ask the blind man. He didn't get permission from his parents either that he was born blind. Neither. So do we believe these things? Well, this is where we're going to be tested, brethren. And another reason why we have these trials and adversities. Persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me, Paul says, at Antioch and at Iconium at Lystra, what persecutions I endured simply because he was preaching the cross. Hebrews 10.32 says, But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of 
afflictions. Sounds to me like the people of God are going to go through trials. It happened in the Old Testament. It's happening in the New Testament. And these things are then realities for us, brethren. Get prepared. Be prepared. And if you're going through one now, then listen to me. This is the Word of God. And the Word of God tells us to count it all joy. And I I know how hard that must be. It can't be easy. And again, don't, don't don't rule out, as we showed you from Scripture, that James here is not ruling out that you can't be sad in your trials, that you can't be troubled by your trials, that you can't have sorrow in your trials. How do I know that? Because we see in our Lord Jesus that very same thing. He was a man of sorrow. And I don't think he disobeyed here, verse 2, do you? He counted it all joy. But there was a facet of his life that he could look and say, this is great sorrow to me. I'm exceeding sorrowful even unto death, he says. Did he disobey James 1-2? I don't think so. That was just a facet of his life. And so, brethren, there will be the joys and there will be the sorrows in the same trial and oftentimes at the same time. That's how well you're put together by God. But that can happen. Man is a marvelous creature of God, isn't he? That we can be both happy and sad at the same time. Well, notice secondly then, blessed is that man. Now, if you remember the context, James had just spoken upon the man who was unstable in all his ways. That man is not blessed. The contrast here is verse 12. But, I've added the but there, blessed is the man that endureth temptation. Notice again the contrast there. The double-minded man, the man who has doubt as the predominant thing of his life, he's not blessed. In fact, he's cursed. But this man, the man who endures temptation, is the man who is blessed of God. And as we pointed out and noted just a moment ago, all God's people have diverse temptation. A fact of the Christian life, we pointed out. And James tells us it's not just the man who faces though temptation who is blessed. And please listen to me. It's not just the man who faces the temptation who is blessed, but notice verse 12, it's the man who endures the temptation. There's a difference. He doesn't put a period after the word, uh, blessed is the man, and then leaves out other things here. It's the man who endures the temptation who is blessed. Having temptations in and of themselves doesn't make you a blessed man. Because the world faces them too. It's the man or the woman, as the case may be, or the child who is a believer, who is tried and tested and faces temptation, who endures. That is the one who is blessed. It isn't because you fall down and break a leg you're blessed. It isn't because something happened in your life that you're blessed. It's when you endure those things that take place, then are you blessed indeed. Well, children, the word endure here, you know what it means? Very simply put, it means to put up with something. 
Perhaps you have a brother or a sister who's always pestering you. And you just kind of put up with him or you put up with her. That's really what this word means. Nothing fancy here, nothing big theologically here we have to discuss. It's just the fact that you put up with it. That's what it means to endure. You press on. You don't stop, but you keep going. You're enduring it. Now, saying it that easily, that sounds great, but... What does James mean here when it comes... What does the Bible, I should say, more particularly? What does it mean when it says to endure? How do we endure in such a way that we would be considered blessed? I have about seven things. So here's your test this morning on whether you're enduring properly in your test so that at the end you can say, I'm blessed indeed in this. Here's number one. You're hesitant to murmur in the midst of your trial. Now, again, I'm not saying that all these are... Let me yeah, back this up. In, before I give these, let me say, I, don't, I would like perfection in these. I ought to strive for perfection in every one of these things I'm getting ready to give. But I'm also a realist and realize we have indwelling sin. So I understand there will be measures of this. So if you can see measures of this in your life, then bless God because you're blessed. That's my point. Okay, so I'll get back to my point here. Number one, there is a hesitancy to murmur and to complain about the trial. I'm not saying you can't talk about it. I can't say you can't go to others with it. Nor am I saying even that you can't cry out in those holy cries and holy murmurs to God with them, as we see the psalmist does many times. But you're not murmuring to brethren and to leaders. Because that's what the children of Israel did, do you remember? They came to Moses and complained and murmured. God got tired of it, didn't he? Time after time. Tenth time, that's it. None of you will go over to the land. You've disobeyed, you've distrusted, you've murmured too much. In fact, in one day he swallowed up in a whole thousands of folks. Because of their murmuring. So it's a dangerous thing to murmur. You're blessed if you don't murmur in the midst of your trial. Hard as it may be, keep the tongue. James is going to deal with that in chapter 3. Because a lot of our murmuring comes through right here, you see. Through the tongue. So we have to be careful. So we're enduring when murmuring is at a minimum in this. A second thing, obvious, is a trust. A man who is enduring properly according to the Word of God is someone who trusts in God, believes these things, holds to these things, works through these things because he knows that all of this, as verse 3 says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. That's faith, brethren. I said, well, it looks like knowing to me. It's true, but you can't. Sometimes those are interchangeable. Without knowledge, obviously, there can be. That can be faith. That can be knowledge without faith, no doubt. But this is not that kind of knowledge here in verse three. This is knowledge that believes and trusts. Thirdly, it knows, as I just got through pointing out there, and thus it can wait upon the Lord. Now, the waiting on the Lord is a two-way street. Waiting can mean and does mean oftentimes that you don't just go out and do whatever you want. You're 
patiently waiting on the Lord as He reveals more in His Word to you, as you learn and experience. That's where there is that kind of waiting. But it also means something else, the word wait. When you go to a restaurant and the guy is standing there with the tray, what's he called? He is your waiter. And what is he a waiter to do? He is a waiter to serve you. So the idea then of waiting upon the Lord means you are serving the Lord. What is one of the temptations we all have in the midst of a temptation to do when it come, when they come? Is it not just to kind of leave me alone? I don't want to be bothered. I want to hold up in my room. I don't want to serve anyone. Now, in fact, I just want to be served as a matter of fact. And so that's the temptation we have, isn't it? The worst thing we can do, brethren, is to get into that shape. When a trial and temptation is to come, what I advise the brethren to do is to get busy. Serve. Serve the Lord. Serve the brethren. Wait upon the Lord. It has that connotation to it. But oftentimes that's the temptation, isn't it? To be waited on rather than to serve. Number four, you're enduring properly if you are doing what James has told us already. Ask for wisdom. You ought to know by now, on point, first three points there, you're lacking in some things. If we're going through trials, then pray for wisdom. That's not a sign of failing in the trial. That's a sign of success in the trial. Because that's more of your dependence upon the Lord. When you're asking, you're seeking and searching. Thus, you're working out your salvation with fear and tremble. You are enduring the trial. So, ask for wisdom. Another thing is humility ought to be shown. Humility. Remember the previous verse verses. It's not the proud who God blesses, but it's the, the lowly. In the book of Ecclesiastes, I thought I had the reference for this, but Ecclesiastes 7, I'll turn there, uh, verse 8. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8 says, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Repeat that because that's pretty good. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. It's better to get out of the trial than to be getting into one, isn't it? And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So, brethren, we're knowing then that we're enduring properly when that humility is being worked in us. Remember, sometimes we're going through the temptation temptation because of pride. And maybe it's doing its work when we see humility, humbleness of mind and meekness being worked in us. Another thing, number six, is a persevering, and is continuing on, the enduring itself, in the midst of his trial. We don't stop. One of the, one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews is this idea, don't stop. If you stop, there's no hope for you. And their particular predicament was this. 
they had believed on Christ and their fellow Jews then, their fellow Hebrews, were persecuting them terribly. And, you know, wooing, trying to wooing them back to the old covenant way of life. And to forget about this Christ and come back to Moses. And that's why Paul writes in Hebrews, look, Christ is better than Moses. Grace is better than the law. And all of those things. And yet there was this calling from the Hebrews, a calling from the natural flesh in this, to come back. And Paul tells them and reminds them and warns them, if you go back, there's no hope. You cannot sacrifice Christ again. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. So don't stop. And one of the temptations that can come, brethren, in the midst of our trial is, if this is the Christian life, I don't want any more to do with it. So when we're going through the trial, that means we're succeeding. We're persevering. And again, Paul reminds those writers there in Hebrew, or the readers in Hebrews, look, you haven't resisted yet unto blood. You're not dead yet. If you're still alive, you're still breathing. And you're still persevering. And the last thing is faithfulness and obedience. And how many times have I said this from the pulpit? Temptations are no excuse for disobedience. Both in the omission and the commission of God's command. I don't think I've ever said it that way before, have I? I just said it's always, you know, you have to obey. But I mean in both in the omission and the commission of God's commands. That is, don't do the things you shouldn't be doing, and then you better get busy doing the things we ought to be doing. Because this is one of the very ends of our temptation. To show our love and our faithfulness unto the Lord. Remember, Abraham being called to sacrifice his son. His only son. The promised son. And he tells him, you go to the Mount Moriah and you're to plunge the knife into his heart. Yes, Lord. And by faith, the scripture says, he went to go do that very thing. In fact, he had the knife in hand, raised in air, and the angel of the Lord called out and said, Abraham, Abraham, and stopped him. Now, the thing we could have said was, now, wait a minute, Lord. I'm not going to go that far with this faith thing. I'm not going to be this serious about my Christianity. But he didn't. He persevered, did he not, by faith. As I noted, and will continue to note, temptations and trials are the things that test us. That's the purpose of all of this. To see what you're made of. Now, God already knows what you're made of. He's revealing it to you. And by the way, He's revealing it to others, what you're made of. Did you know that? It's not just your own soul that's looking in on this, but your brethren. That's why the Scripture says in Hebrews 12, being encompassed by so great amount of witnesses. And all those witnesses were tested, weren't they? You see, they were the signposts God put up. And so, brethren, when you're going through a trial, not only think about your soul, think about what you're doing before the Lord, 
But think how it looks to others. Because you might be their signpost in the trial that they face. And will they do like you? Do you want them to be like you in a trial? Well, oftentimes they will be because they've seen your example or they've seen my example. Makes a difference, doesn't it? See, this is all what we're... This is Christianity, brethren. This is... Remember we said the overarching theme of the book of James is what? True religion. And we said one of the subtopics of true religion is that God's people are going to be tested. And this is where it hits us. Just like this. Notice that. This is the man then who endures. This kind of endurance is the one, he says here, who is blessed. This is the blessed man. And he's the only one who endures. And there's two reasons within the text. One, the very thing that works endurance or patience, as the word is used, is the temptation itself. In other words, to get more endurance in your walk is to have more temptations. It's like anyone who runs or swims or does whatever exercises, lift weights, you do more in order so you can do more. You run the mile so you can run a 1.1 mile, 1.2 mile, as the case may be. You lift 50 pounds so that tomorrow perhaps you can put the extra 10 on so you can lift 60 pounds. It's those weights, those things that keep us to be able to go on to the next level. And without them, you don't. So we're blessed in that thing. And then secondly, that the faithfulness required in truth will be amply rewarded. Notice what he says. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love Him. What's the reward of all of this? It's the crown of life. I know most of us brought up was brought up under dispensationalism and there's those five crowns that you can win, you know, baloney. What this simply means is eternal life, my friend. The, the emphasis in the Greek isn't on the crown, it's on life. Eternal life. In other words, these are the folks who have eternal life. Those who are blessed, who endure temptations. We don't earn eternal life by enduring temptations. But that's the mark of those who will have eternal life and do have eternal life is endurance in the times of trials and adversities. So it's not a reference to the crown itself, but it's a reference to eternal life. And it is only those who will persevere in this eternal life, or who have this eternal life. So again, it's not teaching we must endure in order to be saved, but the fact of the matter is we do endure and we will be saved. Eternal life, as you know, is a free gift of God. It's not earned by our faithfulness, it's not earned by our obedience, but it is earned through the faithfulness and the obedience of Jesus Christ. And anyone who is faithfully enduring in their trials are those who have come to that saving knowledge of Christ. 
and they alone. Notice something else about them. Which the Lord hath promised to them that love Him. Another characteristic of a believer is not only that they endure, is that they love God. They love the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Here's a description again of the blessed man. The man who's tempted, the man who endures, he's the man who loves the Lord. And that love is manifested, guess how? Not by having these warm, ooey-gooey feelings in your heart about God, but it's by enduring the temptations faithfully. That's how we manifest our love to God. This is the love of God, that you keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. Another thing I want you to notice here this morning is, who is it that pronounces this blessing? Well, we can say right away it's James, can't we? But in reality, who is the pusher behind James here this morning when he says that? Is it not God? Notice this. It's God who thinks this is the blessed man. The world doesn't. The world thinks you're nuts for thinking this way. The world thinks you're a little strange that you would count it all joy when you fall into Tyre's temptation. They would think it strange that you wouldn't seek their wisdom rather than God's wisdom. I mean, you would be seeking God's rather than theirs. They would think it strange that you're not puffed up and proud like they are and have your bumper sticker saying, I'm proud to be an American. Oh, no. They would think we're strange. God doesn't think us strange. God says... We're blessed. We're blessed. We are the inheritors of eternal life. Well, the time I have remaining, let me apply this this morning. First of all, I'll take you to Mark fourteen thirty-eight. Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit is truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Again, the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. But if we find ourselves in a trial and in temptation, brethren, let us strive then to be faithful. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon today, get that point. Be faithful. Endure unto the end. End of the trial and the end of the Christian walk. We're in a race, brethren, and we can't stop halfway. It's like swimming the English Channel. You stop, you drown. You won't, you don't make it. You'll wash ashore dead, perhaps, by the current, but you won't walk ashore. You'll be dead. And that's the way the Christian walk is. We stop in the midst of it, we drown in perdition and hell. Just a fact. So be faithful. Secondly, we need to reckon it a blessing to be tried and tested and come out on the other end of it purified. We didn't take the time to go into all about temptations and being tried, but one of the things of a trial is that it, it removes the impurities in our lives. And boy, we got plenty of them, don't we? So we need to be being thankful. We need to reckon it a blessing. We need to reckon it a joy. And again, I realize this is hard to think, but this is not our viewpoint. This is God's viewpoint. And God is always right. 
And we are always wrong. Unless we're agreeing with God. Listen to, to David. Psalm 119. And again, you would have to think David's a little touched here. Just as touched as James. But David says in Psalm 119 verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted. What? Let me reread. Someone has messed with the translation here. That can't be right. Let me look in my footnotes and see if the Hebrew is correct here. It is good for me to be afflicted? Yeah, it is. That's what he says here. Look in Psalm 94, verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest them out of thy law. So, in fact, Job tells us, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore, despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. So, well, that's just the Old Testament. Oh, turn to Hebrews 12, and he'll tell you about chastisement too, being very needful for the people of God. Well, how are are afflictions good? Since uh, David said that back there, how are afflictions good? Well, for one thing, it's to learn God's law. Remember, that's what he said back there, if you were watching all of that. If you didn't turn there, I'll turn back. Psalm 119, verse 71 says, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. That's the reason why. So we'll learn God's law. We'll learn to be obedient. Affliction, brethren, and temptation is the classroom for the believer. It's here that we learn experimentally these very things. It's one thing to learn from a book, isn't it? That's another one to learn by experience book learning is great but you know even our Lord in Hebrews 5 verse 8 says that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered what? the son of God? absolutely he learned obedience by the things which he suffered well in what ways do we learn it? well we learn the knowledge of it you think about it here, the Bible is really a big book. How long does it take you to get through the Bible when you're in your daily reading? Probably quite a while, doesn't it? Because it's such a big book. Well, there's a lot to learn in God's Word. We're not one of those that just divide the book in half and we'll only take the New Testament. We recognize all of God's Word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. It's a big book. It makes us re-examine it, doesn't it? Go back. Well, was I right here or was I wrong here? It refreshes our memory about things. It causes obedience. Verse 67 of that same psalm. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. Hence there is, I was afflicted, and so now I obey. It makes us more consistent in our walk. Verse 20. He says, My soul breaketh for the longing that hath unto it... Oh, excuse me, I blew that one. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Makes us consistent at all times. It improves opportunities to see God's working in us. Verse 28 of that same psalm. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word, he says. It also makes us realize the certainty of God's word. I know, O Lord, thy, thy judgments are light, right, 
and that thou in faithfulness hath afflicted me. You see, it makes us realize these things. It gives us quickening grace and comfort. Verse 15. One of the things about temptations is that it weans us from the world. Because a lot of things God uses to tempt us, and, or what we are tempted and tried by, are by the things of this world, aren't they? Well, it makes us step back a little bit more and say, well, that's the thing that brought me hurt. Why do I want to play with that again? This is the thing that's made sorrow in my heart. Why do I want to mess with that? Why would I have a love for this world that's going to pass away someday? And so forth. Then another thing, let us be cautious about our murmurings. I know we have trials and I know they're difficult. But let us be careful about what we murmur and how we murmur. Let us be careful not to murmur, period. And then lastly, listen closely because I'll probably be misunderstood. Or let me put it this way. I probably won't say this right, so I will be misunderstood. But I'm going to do my best here. So I'll just read what I got. In the midst of, in the midst of trials, in the midst of our trials, I can't even say it right. We, in the midst of our trials, can lawfully think that God's grace and His great love is upon me or us. My salvation is secure despite how it may be with me or even my closest loved ones. That's lawful to think that. Now, what did I just say? No matter what happens to my closest relative, my closest loved one, whatever happens to this, that, or the other, that I have made perhaps an island myself, whatever the thing is, I can thank God, though, that I am saved by the grace of God. You see, that's a lawful thing to think in the midst of your trial. My children may go astray. They may go to hell. My parents may do this or that. But this is certain. God so loves me. Woke you up, didn't I? Well, you need to be woken up. Because this is the stuff you need to hear to help you get through a trial. Despite the world may go to hell. But this is a sure thing. God's covenant with me is sure. Say, is that lawful to think that way? Turn, if you would, to 2 Samuel, and I'll show you. This is David speaking here. He's surveying his life. He has had a hard walk. He has had children apostatize. He has had children murder one another. He's had children commit treason. He has had many battles. He's had a man chase him halfway across Israel trying to kill him. And in the midst of all this, he can still say this. 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. Now, this think of this. This is talking about his household now. His own loved ones. His own seed out of his own loins. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire although he make it not to grow. You see the point? It doesn't matter. I mean, we want our children saved. We want our loved ones, our neighbors to go to heaven with us. 
But in the end, if they don't, here's the important thing. I have a covenant that is well-ordered with me because it's been made with the Son of God Himself. And it's sure and it's true. That's what's going to get you to the other side, my friend. Not the cycle babble that we have today, tricking you into thinking better thoughts, but it's knowing the security of the everlasting covenant of God with His Son, which affects me. I am saved. Let the world go to hell if that's what happens. Again, I'm not saying we say that in a callous way, but as a way and a means of getting us across to the other side of trials and adversity, it is lawful to say, although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made it an everlasting covenant with me, he says, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation. Thanks be to God. Is that not so? Our hope, brethren, is not in ourselves. It's not in our endurance. It's in Christ who God has made the everlasting covenant with. And it is so sure that I will make it over to the other side. Despite what happens to me or to my loved ones, for that matter.